Aaron Dworkin is a multifaceted artist and entrepreneur with passion for diversifying and amplifying the arts, epitomizing how art, leadership, and diversity all play a vital role in advancing our society. Dworkin founded the Sphinx Organization, a nonprofit organization that molds Black and Latinx classical musicians, and he serves on the advisory board for several prestigious arts organizations. Dworkin is an educator of both arts leadership and entrepreneurial leadership at his alma mater, the University of Michigan. Aaron Dworkin, decorated in awards and accolades, continues to be a force in his community, driving the need for diversity, arts education, and leadership. Aaron Dworkin, welcome to the creative process. It's wonderful to be here the creativity no you're no stranger to that i should say you've become uh, you've become an inspiration to so many i was interested uh, to hear about your path to being uh you know a social entrepreneur um and an arts entrepreneur uh because you had spoken about you know being a, a young man and your what drew you to music and that that was a place where you could have a voice and now, of course, you have the you've the role of be, becoming the voice for so many and allowing making space for them to have voice in a diverse artscape. So I'm just wondering if you could describe to us that path from being a musician to the many roles you play. Yeah, sure. Well, it's uh, I would say one of the things is that there's many branches uh, to that path. Um, but one of the key things was that I was at the University of Michigan um, uh, studying violin, which I started when I was five. And, uh, and I you know, went into a lesson one day and my teacher asked if I wanted to play music by a black composer. And I didn't know any black composers. And so I, that got me thinking, how could I be, in college have played the violin my whole life and not know any black composers. And so that led me to have just a great interest in their work, but then also beginning to think broader of why was it that when I went to the Detroit Symphony concert, I wouldn't see anyone who looked like me on stage or in the audience and um, uh, any major orchestras. And, uh, and so that got me thinking because classical music had been such a key part of my life, why was that the case? And was there something I could do to try to impact that? And that led to initially founding the Sphinx organization and doing um, that work and growing the organization in a host of ways. And then about five years ago, uh, from that work, I was invited to come back and serve as dean at the School of Music, Theater and Dance at Michigan. And of course, at that point, I had spent almost all of my professional life really being an arts entrepreneur and looking at how to build systems and sustainability around ideas that relate to the arts. And so um, after serving as dean and now teaching arts entrepreneurship and arts leadership, I'm kind of bringing those skill sets to bear in terms of trying to share my experiences and the things that I've learned with my students uh, in terms of how they can actually build leadership careers and how they can bring about change in the arts world. But, but artists are not traditionally or, uh, you know, taught to be entrepreneurs. Uh, that's almost a dirty word, as you, as you wrote, uh, or that's the conception, and then being a business, having a business mind. It is not enough to just learn one's craft, the craft of one's art making. 
um, because then what do you do with that, right? I think those of us in the arts, whether it be the visual art that I do or the audible um, art or music making uh, or filmmaking, uh, that I, I, I make it, of course, for myself, but I also want to share it with others. Part of my hope is that my art will speak to other people and either get them to think about something in a way they might not have before or inspire them in some way or connect with them in some way, either intended by me or potentially not intended by me, right? And so to do that, we need skill sets of how do you do that? How do you bring your art to other people in a way so that your own art making can be sustainable? And that practice, that entrepreneurial practice and those skill sets are critically important. And we do a disservice to any of our young people or any aspiring artist by not sharing, training, preparing them with those skill sets as well. Yes, and you know, it's not really, it's, there's a commercial element, but of course they have to live. So to say the opposite is to say that, oh, you shouldn't have, you should be able to just eat your art. You should just, just live on air. And, but the other aspect is not even just commercial. I mean, the more popular you are, you can be more successful financially, but is that it's about having a bigger audience. It's about bringing more joy and, you know, it's, it's actually just more art, really. Yeah, well, and I think it's interesting because I think it can, it can materialize in a number of different ways. You could just, the more audience you get and the more people who might either buy your art or pay to see your art or do different things, that could help. But also, especially in modern day and age and with certain technology platforms, if you gather together just 500 to 1,000 people who are dedicated followers of your work and who are willing to invest in it, then all of a sudden that can really become very, very substantial uh, you know, income. If you have a thousand people who love your work and are willing to pay you know, $10 a month to be able to access your work or part of your creative life, that's $10,000 a month, you know, and that's over a million, uh, you know, or I'm sorry, over a million, over $100,000. Uh, a year, and so all of a sudden you have a you have a great livelihood um, of that now, of course, then, if you either up your art or you do certain things that creates that instead of that valuation that someone might have of ten dollars a month and you you know uh, increase that to a hundred dollars a month now you 're talking about of course an extraordinary income that would put you in the top you know one percent of artists uh, so it actually it could either be a small group of very dedicated people or potentially a much larger group of people who are more ancillary uh, to your creative uh, product. And so, um, but the reality is, is that these skill sets help you to think about that and think, okay, how can I take this creative product that I have, that I have to emanate because of who I am, um, but how can I deliver it um, produce it in such a way so that it can be sustainable. And those are very learnable skill sets that can transform someone's life so they can actually spend it doing their art. Yeah, and I think, you know, it must, it's a kind of listening as well because the audience isn't just listening to you. Hopefully, like with the most devoted fans, you're listening to them and they feel part of the story. 
Absolutely. And I think actually people have a feel a much greater value or connection to an artist when they feel like it isn't just a one-way street, like there is give and take and the artist is learning from them as well. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, I'm speaking, you know, I want to jump around because as I said, you've done so many things and I want to speak, I don't want to neglect your, you know, your, your path to music, you know, what you, what drew you to it. Um, you know, just all that, the love, the love, how you find yeah. it. Yeah. So, well, for me, you know, uh, when I was five years old and I have a little bit of a wild history uh, because um, I was born on of all days 9-11 uh, and I was immediately given up for adoption. And then I was adopted by a white Jewish couple who already had a birth son. Uh, and this was in New York City. And, uh, and they adopted me and my adoptive mother was an amateur violinist. And so it was her playing that initially got me interested and engaged in the instrument and really loving it from a very early age. Uh, and then it's interesting because fast forward 31 years, I'm reunited with my birth parents, my birth father who's black Jehovah's Witness, my birth mother who's white Irish Catholic, who ended up getting back together, having another child who they raised, my full sister, Maddie, um, who is a lawyer, an attorney in New York. And so basically in the end, I'm kind of a black, white, Jewish, Irish, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, growing up with a big Afro. And so the art making and the creative processes that I engage in, in some way, shape, or form, bring all of those experiences and who I am to bear in, um, in what I produce. And I think that's what's, what's so important about art making is that we can really put a lot of ourselves into it. It's really interesting. And then you were born and, born and raised in New York City up until the age of 10. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, and, and so I started playing when I was five. So I was very actively playing the violin when we moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania. When I was 10 years old, and um, that was a drastic change for me, uh, because you're know, moving from literally midtown Manhattan to uh, a town at the time had kind of, you know, one black family and me, big Afro, playing the violin. So I was pretty ostracized, and, um, but continued my studies. Uh, and then uh, had the great opportunity to be able to spend my junior and senior year of high school at the Interlochen Arts Academy, which I credit with saving my life. Um, and then uh, the University of Michigan, where I credit being able to build my life. Uh, and that's where I ultimately got my degrees was at Michigan. I guess it's almost in a way you might be related to a musician come, becoming a conductor or, you know, like, um, your role, you're, you're transitioning when you found out, you, you realize you're doing more work, uh, less performing, but more work enabling others to perform. And then you realize that that was your instrument. And I thought that was such a lovely way to say it and to also honor the important work that's done by, you know, arts leaders. Absolutely. And that's actually a big driving um, force behind Arts Engines, uh, which is the uh, show really about arts administrators that we do every week. But it definitely, it was very interesting because I think like many musicians, I felt guilty that I wasn't practicing and, you know, wasn't doing my, you know, my music. And then I realized that at the time, the organization I was trying to build had become my 
primary instrument. And I viewed it creatively. It became part of my creative output, my creative processes. Um, and, uh, and that's how I view um, managing. That's how I view entrepreneurship. Um, uh, I view it in a very similar way as I do playing the violin or uh, my spoken word art, which is now kind of where my performing lies. Um, and, uh, and so while I still do love to perform and to, and to engage in through, say, spoken word, um, uh, I do view the creation of projects, of initiatives, that aspect of entrepreneurialism to me is, is a core part of actually just my creative process that I have to do too. And it's so interesting because there's a lot of people who are, you know, in these rooms as the art is being made and it, and it's not, you don't think about them, but it's, if it's a performance, it's on stage, these are decisions about staging, about who, you know, casting and all, but you don't think of it, you think, oh, it was, oh, it was like that. It was magic. (laughs) And, or you go to an orchestra or you go to a gallery opening, any of these things, you just go and you're like, oh yeah, so this, you know, an artist just sat, created their art and all of this kind of magically appeared. And, uh, uh, but the reality is there's so much work and so much effort and thought and strategy and skill sets that go into the infrastructure that surrounds us as artists. And I think, you know, it's invaluable. I think that the artists, you know, if they're open with their, you know, healthy egos and things, they recognize that they need to be listened to. If they're coming out in a spontaneous way and throwing out ideas out there, they're also getting ideas and they're listening and someone's saying, that's a good idea, you know. So really, you know, editors and all those people, uh, you know, to do so much valuable work and and it's so it's wonderful that they don't like you know need the credit necessarily demand the credit but um where would we be without them i think it would be very disorganized true 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 so uh so i really love to highlight them uh through arts engines which is all about those who are really taking on those administrative roles and what they're doing and what their best practices are, but also what are their human interest stories behind their own careers. And then you also wrote The Entrepreneurial Artist, which to lessons from history as well, contemporary and from history. Yes, absolutely. And so that, a little less on the administrator side, there it's really practicing entrepreneurial artists. And so what I wanted to try and do was to take Um, examples from different disciplines and show really delve into the story of someone who is a practicing successful entrepreneur so you know and then build a chapter around them so there's a chapter um, based on uh, you know that focuses on musical theater and so I interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda and delved into it one on theater Jeff Daniels Jazz, Wynton Marsalis, et cetera, you know, um, conducting Marin Alsop, et cetera, the list goes on. Uh, dance, Bill T. Jones. And so what um, I think a, a reader of the book is able to get from that is not only this sense of here are these very specific best practices, entrepreneurial um, approaches and tactics that I could utilize and learn from, but also, wow, here's just this extraordinary story of a human being um, who I either might want to emulate or has reached a level of success in an area that interests me 
and I get to kind of hear a little more about their story and, and, and the challenges they faced. And, you know, speaking of, you know, you know one of the major goals of uh, the Sphinx organization or speaking of, like uh, you mentioned, uh, Lynn manuel Miranda, I mean, you listen to his life story, basically he had a, you know, or some of the other, I mean, so many artists, they have to, for, they have to make the productions for the things that they're not seeing. They're not seeing roles. He's not seeing roles for Lat Latino, Latinx, uh, you know, uh, and and other and other. I'm just his own background. I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. And so one of the interesting things that definitely cuts across all of the the, um, if you will, the cast who I who I bring to light and illuminate in the book, um, is that there are some people who see things that either don't exist in the world or ways that they feel the world is wrong and they complain about it. And they say, well, this is just terrible and or they blame others and or they chastise other people for what they're either doing or not doing. And then there are those who look at those things that they don't like in the world or they feel are absent in the world and they take on the responsibility to do something about it themselves. And that's what entrepreneurial artists do, like Lynn Manuel, like um, you know uh, Jeff Daniels. They they see something and they're like, "There's something lacking here. So can I start my own theater? Can I create my own musical story? Can I find a way to lead or to make the world a little bit better and not just be a casual observer who complains, but an active participant who makes a difference?" Since the foundation of the Sphinx organization, you know, how has the landscape changed? Yeah, well, so, and here's the interesting thing. The landscape has absolutely changed. Um, however, it has absolutely not changed enough. Um, and just like, for example, overall, you know, race relations, if we, you know, want to talk about how, what that looks like in, in America. It has absolutely changed over the past century. But is it where we want to be? Of course not when we look at certain recent events. So we can both look and say, we have moved the needle, things have changed. We should understand that, recognize that, think about what has worked, what hasn't worked. But at the same time, realize we have absolutely not come far enough and that there is much work yet to be done. So in terms of diversity with classical music, um, we have seen an, an uptick. We've seen almost a doubling of Blacks and La uh, those who are Latinx in orchestras. Um, when I founded the organization, it was almost unheard of for, say, an African-American instrumentalist to solo with a major American orchestra. That happens dozens of times a year now or more. Um, you know, Sphinx alums have gone on to every top 10 music school. The percentage of Black and Latinx um, musicians in music schools um, has increased. Uh, and so uh, we have seen an increase in a number of those ways. Um, and we have now really, especially I would say in the past five years or so, we've seen a very significant increase in the initiatives, projects, commitment, awareness, of the importance of this issue amongst mainstream arts organizations. And of course, that's really when change occurs. No one organization can you know, change everything, right? It has to be 
um, a movement. It has to be many organizations, many practitioners who are involved in a process that is evolutionary for a field for us to actually see that. Um, and so while I continue to be frustrated that there isn't enough change, I am more optimistic than I've ever been that there is um, even more significant change will unfold in the next five years than I think has unfolded in the past decade. Um, just speak a little bit more about the initiatives. I know that you're helping um, um, you know, fund arts education. I don't, I don't know if you mentioned, let's mention it's very generous you know, in terms of the annual, what you, what you give annually into your foundation. Oh yeah, so, so Sphinx is actually able to, because these problems, issues related to say diversity in classical music are just not um, simple issues. They're really complex. And so they often require complex solutions. So Sphinx has a host of different programs. So of course it has in some ways kind of what's been its flagship program, national competition uh, for young and Latin, uh, young Black and Latinx string players. And um, that ultimately culminates in the finals of the national competition, and the top winner wins a $50,000 prize, and, and multiple of the winners go and solo with orchestras around the country uh, and even around the world. So there's that. But Sphinx also then has year-round educational programming. So from programming you know, in cities like Detroit and Flint where we're putting instruments in the hands of young students for the very first time, providing them with that exposure, uh, transforming their lives through that opportunity to access music at a very, very young age and not just observe it and hear it, but actually engage in music making themselves. Um, and then Sphinx has a series of summer programs uh, and with those summer programs, uh, it's able to really address kind of that middle range, uh, mostly high school students uh, of color who are looking to really say, you know, I really want to take this to the next level. I want to be able to go to a top music school. I want to build a life through my practice on um, in, in classical music and on a classical instrument. And, uh, and so um, Sphinx is able to provide them with, uh, with those opportunities through its summer programs. Um, then one of the really critically important things that Sphinx does is to convene, to bring together people literally from around the world, almost a thousand people now come from all over the world to be able to engage in Sphinx Connect, uh, which is held in January or February, uh, hopefully uh, it will be uh, this next January, um, uh, in Detroit where um, uh, all of these people come together to think about and talk about these issues relating to diversity in classical music. So there's panels and presentations and concerts and all these types of things so that people can learn, collaborate, partner, um, and so also to all further the movement of building equity, diversity, um, and inclusion in, in classical music. Uh, and then Sphinx has some very high level uh, awards programs like its Medal of Excellence that it celebrates each year and, um, and, a, host of, uh, and a host of other programs. It has a, a touring uh, orchestra, the Sphinx Virtuosi, who have a big gala 
performance at Carnegie Hall every year. Unfortunately, that will be virtual, uh, but it will take place. So people should certainly uh, look for that online and they can go to Sphinx's website to find out about that October uh, big gala performance of the Sphinx Virtuosi. So all in all, a host of different programs that literally reach millions in audiences every year, tens of thousands of, uh, of young people uh, through the educational uh, programming. And, and I just could not be more proud of the extraordinary team that, that carries that out every day and uh, under uh, APA's leadership, uh, which has really been extraordinary. So... Uh, I, I, this is a broader question about um, classical music or musical education and accessibility to, to, to all, to, uh, to diverse, uh, to diverse uh, young people, uh, but to, to all because there's the you know huge cuts in arts funding, and it's it's distressing because it, it's not just a musical education. There's so many things I think, and you can speak more about this about cooperation, collaboration, and listening and working with others that can be carried over to many other disciplines. I mean, so arts education, I think, is a critical component. I'm obviously a strong advocate for from STEM to STEAM, uh, adding the arts to the regular STEM uh, fields that we want to focus on in, in education. Um, there's a congressional caucus focused on STEM to STEAM. Uh, and, and that's because this, this accessibility, the exposure to arts at a young age, we know affects so many different aspects of a young person's life. Um, and so we see an impact on, on overall youth development. We see an impact on other um, academics, uh, you know, students who are, you know, in music do better in math, you know, all of those types of tie-ins. But for me, while there are all of those, and so it just makes sense from a broader educational youth development perspective to include the arts. Um, I think that the driving reason should be the arts themselves. Um, when we empower young people to be able to use artistic mediums to express themselves, to share about the things that they see in the world around them, it develops those skill sets. And as a society, we need the arts. Um, it is how we express ourselves to one another. Um, there is a reason why humankind has been art making um, since, you know, our beginning. Um, it is critical to kind of who we are and to the human condition. And um, I think our society has a responsibility to nurture that in young people, to help develop the training, the discipline, so that our art making is not just kind of a random uh, thing that only pops up here or there, but is something that is nurtured, thought about, and strategically utilized by our society to further ourselves, to further our tolerance of one another, our understanding of one another, and our own, you know, um, human evolution. Uh, you've done uh, a spoken word piece um, on um, George Floyd. What is the name of this? Yeah, uh, so we, we entitled it Breathe um, for a, a very critically important reason, um, which is that um, obviously this was a tragedy and I think that one of the things we feel driven to do as artists is to 
try to speak to tragedies that occur through our art. So um, I am a spoken word artist. That's kind of my primary performing artist medium. And so when the uh, body cam transcript came out from the officer's body cam um, who murdered George Floyd, um, I was deeply struck by the um, inhumanity and, and just the process of his murder. And I felt like the video shared that in ways that were devastating uh, to so many of us, but that George Floyd's own words spoke to um, what had occurred. And, um, and so I took the last 345 words that he spoke and I scored them with um, a sonata by Florence Price, uh, African-American uh, composer, and, um, and created a piece. And then uh, Michelle Kahn uh, and I uh, performed that piece and, uh, and released a video of it where we include imagery, uh, not of ourselves, but of all of the resulting impact from the loss of George Floyd. So we show the imagery of all of the different protests that were directly in response to this event, which we're trying to evoke. Um, and um, obviously I think many people will get different things out of it. One of our hopes is that, um, you know, we already see that people seem to be moving on as we do from any tragedy. And uh, we don't want people to move on. We want to, we make sure that people remember that this occurred, understand how it occurred, so that we keep working to ensure that it does not happen again. Um, because this type of brutality, unfortunately, does keep happening again. And so sometimes when you can capture something through the arts or depict it through the arts, it sometimes can resonate with people in a way that will propel action, um, will propel um, remembrance, will propel um, a, uh, an, an ongoing commitment to make sure that something like this uh, just won't occur again. Uh, so we released that and, uh, and people can uh, see it on, uh, on Facebook. I am Dariana Davis, a Bachelor of Arts in Media, Journalism and Film Communications candidate with a concentration in TV, Media and Film Production at Howard University in Washington, DC. Dworkin's spoken word piece on the death of George Floyd entitled Breathe powerfully depicted the intersection between art and activism. Dworkin recited George Floyd's last words in this piece and is accompanied by melancholic music to set the tone of sadness and parallel the roller coaster of emotions those who have seen the clip of Floyd's murder encounter. His recitation of Floyd's last words contradict the actions of the officer who tried to silence Floyd with his knee in his neck. George Floyd used his words to fight for his life. Aaron Dworkin is using those same words to advocate for justice on Floyd's behalf. Dworkin is showing how others have taken the initiative to attend protests and speak out on Floyd's behalf and is urging for the continuation of it because silence is betrayal. Personifying art activism, 
Please be inspired by Aaron Dworkin's breed to constantly fight for what's right. Please, please, no, I can't choke. I can't breathe, Mr. Officer. Please, please. My wrist, my wrist, man. Okay, okay, I want to lay on the ground. 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 I'm going down. I'm going down. I'm going down. I'm going down. I know I can't breathe. Can't breathe. Let go of me, man. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Please, man, please listen to me. Please listen to me. Forgery? For what? For what? I can't fucking breathe, man. I can't fucking breathe. Thank you. Thank you. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Ah, 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 
My stomach hurts, my neck hurts, everything hurts. I need some water or something, please, please. I can't breathe, officer. You're going to kill me, man. Come on, man. Oh, oh, I cannot breathe. I cannot breathe. Ah, they'll kill me. They'll kill me. I don't know if there's some current project that you want to mention so that if I didn't include it, so. Yeah, um, so let's see. Well, I am actually, I just wrapped up post-production uh, for um, a feature film uh, that we were working on, uh, which is called An American Prophecy and features uh, frontline healthcare workers as they are reciting um, Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, which he wrote uh, literally a century ago. And so again, it's a commentary on uh, the human condition, showing how this text is relevant even after a hundred years, but doing it through the artistic voices of medical professionals who have been on the front lines of the COVID battle. So uh, that's been a really exciting project. And then of course, Arts Engines, uh, which is, comes out uh, uh, every um, Saturday uh, as a show and, and people can, um, you know, subscribe 
uh, for free on artsengines.org and so that they can uh, sign up so they can get the show every week. Oh, those, those are wonderful. So we were looking forward to that. And I just, in, in closing, I mean, one thing that's been on our mind through COVID, through Black Lives Matter, through all the chaos of this imperfect world we're in, as our, we've been thinking about the future, and I've been, we, you know, we're an educational initiative too. So um, as you think about the future and the kind of world that we're leaving the next generation, and is this the world we want to pass on? Um, you know, what, what are your hopes or what are the things that you want us to know, preserve and remember? Yeah, so, well, of course, the power of the arts. When the arts reflect all of who we are. Um, you know, I love uh, Chimamanda Adichie, Nigerian author, and, and her famous quote about the danger of a single story. And she talks about how the danger of a single story is not that it is untrue, but that it is incomplete. And so I uh, believe that the stories we weave in the arts are incomplete. And so I definitely look forward to a future where we weave all of our stories um, through the arts. And I'm very, very optimistic uh, about the future. Um, and I think we all just have to make sure that we participate whether it's in choosing our leaders of our uh, governments, whether it's engaging in how we express ourselves to one another, that we make sure we participate and that we don't just observe what goes on uh, around us. And in that way, I think we will continue to evolve um, and create uh, a truly beautiful future. Well, I, wa I want to thank you, Aaron Dworkin, for all that you've done in music, in the celebration of the arts, and in, in for um, making space for other stories from, you know, diverse backgrounds, and for, for overall for this commitment that you've shown, um, you know, as, as a, and that kind of sacrifice that also involves not only just to promote your own art, but to make space for other artists. Uh, thank you, Erin Dworkin, for adding your voice to the creative process and to many years to come. Thank you so much. It really was an honor to be invited by you to be able to uh, participate and spend this time together. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Dariana Davis. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Natalis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.